From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Today, normal politics has been suspended as Britain mourns the loss of its longest reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. We'll bring you personal stories about the Queen from those that worked with her, as well as analysis of her impact as head of state, plus perspectives on the monarchy and its future from our Bloomberg reporters around the world. But first, flags are at half-mast on government buildings around the UK as the national mourning period has begun. The Accession Council meets on Saturday to formally proclaim Charles as king. That's a group that includes members of the Privy Council, who are historically the sovereign's most trusted advisers. Also present will be officials from the City of London and from the Commonwealth. At 73 years old, Charles is the oldest person to succeed to the throne in British history. He'll now have to steer the monarchy in a country that's altered beyond recognition since his mother's accession in 1952. So in the coming days, the Queen's body will return from Scotland to London. She will lie in state in Westminster Hall in the heart of Parliament, where the public will be able to pay their own respects to the monarch of 70 years. We have no date yet, but the state funeral for the Queen will take place at Westminster Abbey, with probably a national holiday and financial markets closed. Of course, this is the very place where Queen Elizabeth married Prince Philip in 1947 and where she was crowned in 1953. We've been hearing tributes to the Queen from politicians at home and abroad, but we've also been reflecting on her time on the throne with some of those who worked closely with her over the years. Mary McLeod is a former Conservative MP and she worked as a policy advisor to the Queen. She says that the monarch's death will be felt across the world. It's absolutely a real deep sense of loss across the United Kingdom and and not just in this country, it's around the world and we've heard comments from leaders uh, in the last sort of 24 hours. So it's been really um, a really sad moment for, for the whole country and of course naturally, firstly, um, it's our thoughts go to her immediate family and and the, the new king who of course just already talked about the, how much she was sort of cherished and loved and I think that love is the and being cherished are really good ways to describe her. Um, the Prime Minister has also talked about her being the rock on which modern Britain was built. And again, you know, I, most of us, um, she's been there throughout our whole lives. So we have had that steadfastness um, and seen uh, her and, and she carried with her, of course, such a history um, of of not just this country, but in, of, of countries around the world too. Um, but she will be remembered, um, I think, really as an as an inspiration. Um, I mean, I grew up thinking I could achieve anything. There was a female monarch, a female prime minister. I mean, it's the really she has been there for for everyone throughout their lives, and it's her devotion. 
um, her life of service, a real selfless leader, is how I think everyone is is remembering her. But it's her humility, her dignity, her grace, her warmth, her kindness, that dedication and the wisdom that came with it from all those years of service. Um, but very thoughtful, her curiosity about everyone she met and wanting to listen to them and hear them. And when you spoke to her, you thought you were the most important person to her in the room. Um, she really did listen and engage um, with humour as well, but really strong values. But that sense of duty um, came across above all else and, and she remained engaged and working until the very end. So I think she just touched the hearts of people around the world and united us all as a nation. Mary, you advised the Queen. We can hear the warmth in your voice when you talk about her. What are some of your personal memories of her? Well, I was in a working with the, the royal family um, just after the death of the Princess of Wales. Um, and, a, and it really was um, a, a difficult time. But again, the wisdom that the Queen has shone through at every turn. I mean, if you look at all the things that I was um, proposing and suggesting in terms of changes to the monarchy of the royal family um, and briefing her in areas of national life, she absolutely listened, engaged and and kept changing and adapting the way they did things. And I think that tells, I think, leaders everywhere just how you keep relevant for the moment you're in because you have to look at, and she did, she looked at what people wanted and needed across the country. And that was her, that again, that sense of duty that, that enabled her to be there for everyone. And that's why, you know, I sort of feel she was our strength and stay through that. But I remember the first dinner that I had with her when I met her and it was a very small private dinner and they, and I just laughed the whole evening because she had so many stories to tell. She had this wealth of history behind her and the people that she'd met and the situation that she'd been in and so you know we she told story after story and she definitely had a real sense of sense of humor and and, and could really tell um those stories and and that's why everywhere she went you know she she loved in, engaging with people because those are the things that she would recount at, at later times um and it's with you know some lots of examples of immense kindness where she just thought um of others rather than herself well, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, of course, um, talking about this moment, this important time. She also did call the Prime Minister for us all to come together as a people because upon the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, II, of course, the new head of state is King Charles III. And as, as you have described, you know, the impact of the Queen, it is a hugely daunting task after such a well-loved and long-serving monarch. What sort of king do you think Charles will be? Well, I think he's learned from the best. So I think her qualities will live on in in our new king, King Charles III. And he has been by her side supporting her. And I think that is the best learning that you could, could ever have. Um, he's seen her deal with the good times, the difficult times. He's listened to her wisdom and advice. And therefore, you know, he takes this new role on with 
that wealth of experience now that he has been part of um, for as long as he's been 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 alive. And I think that to me, um, and also, I mean, we've seen over the years where he has been involved in so many interesting campaigns, but it's the incredible work he's done with the Prince's Trust, or even been a real campaigner and um, champion of environmental change, which which he did before it was, you know, something everyone else was talking about. So he certainly has led the way on on many things, and I think he will absolutely um, follow in her footsteps and and do the country proud. That was the former MP and policy advisor to the Queen, Mary MacLeod, talking about her own personal experiences with Her Majesty the Queen. Now, during her 70 years on the throne, Queen Elizabeth II saw massive change in British society as well as the end of the empire. But as Frank Morse, Professor of Cultural Histories at the University of Manchester, has been telling us, the monarchy changed too in that time. A chapter of modern British history and one might say modern world history has come to a close. I think it is a profound cesura, as we can see across the world in terms of the broadcast networks and people's tributes to Queen Elizabeth II, which have been pouring in over the last nearly 24 hours now. You've been working on a study of popular attitudes to the British monarchy across the 20th century. What have you found in terms of the, the changing attitudes? So much has happened in that long stretch of history. So much has happened. I absolutely agree with that. But also what the Queen represented was both change and continuity in the sovereign. So a number of the things that we think about as being very closely identified with Queen Elizabeth II really coming to being in the early 20th century with her grandfather. Firstly, the full sense that uh, the monarch is constitutionally impartial really comes in uh, with her grandfather, uh, George V. Um, also, the idea of approachability and accessibility. Um, in the 19th century and earlier, monarchs were seen as relatively remote, particularly in Britain. But with her grandfather, father, and Queen Elizabeth II, there is a sense of approachability. Uh, the Queen goes walkabout famously for the first time in New Zealand in the early 1970s, and it becomes part of the informal rituals of the way the Queen presents herself to the public. Constitutionally, she has been, like her predecessors, extremely adept. She has very, very rarely put any foot wrong, if at all. Uh, And I think we should all give her credit for that constitutional tightrope that heads of state who have no political power walk. I'm wondering what that tells us about the the evolution of what happens next as as King Mm. Charles III ascends to the throne. How much does the monarch shape opinions of a monarchy? I think we will see change, uh, but I think generally it will be a change of style rather than a change of substance. So um, I don't think there will be any constitutional changes. King Charles has also said when he was Prince of Wales that he would not be making the types of overtly political statements that uh, we've identified with him over the last uh, 40 years. I think we we should also remember the new monarch is a product of the post-war generation. He is touched by some of the new politics of that period. 
He has different attitudes to personal life. So we will inevitably see some of those things represented in his style and his demeanour. But I don't think there will be substantive change. That was Frank Morse, Professor of Cultural Histories at the University of Manchester. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Queen's legacy extends far beyond the United Kingdom. She came to power when the British Empire spanned the globe. Today, the Commonwealth remains part of Britain's global footprint. We're going to hear now, though, from some of our reporters around the world. First, to Bloomberg's Stephen Engel in Hong Kong, who tells us of the British influences in that city 25 years after the handover to China. Her uh, legacy here is still seen on the streets. In the building I am in now, it is Queen's Road Central. Yes, it was named after Queen Victoria, but still, Queen Elizabeth had her likeness on the the banknotes up until the 1997 handover. There were those red post boxes everywhere. Uh, She she is um, an iconic figure in Hong Kong. In fact, uh, Hong Kong had her as their queen for 45 of those 70 years of her reign. So... uh, I've talked to a number of Hong Kong people, even though 25 years now under Chinese rule, there is great fondness, great respect, great admiration for Queen Elizabeth. As my wife, who's a Hong Kong native uh, and went through the British schooling system, she told me this morning she was our queen. So there's a lot of emotions here, and it, it makes it all the more poignant that the Hong Kong government uh, has not put out a statement, uh, you know, offering their condolences. We did hear from President Xi Jinping through state media offering his sincere sympathies, but that came about midday today, many, many hours after the rest of the world had responded. And we're also getting a, a statement from a very strident social media poster, the former editor of the, the Global Times in Beijing, Hu Xi Jin. He said she is friendly to China. She maintained Britain's last dignity. Uh, Very interesting words from him because, of course, Hong Kong kind of caught in the middle of rising acrimony between Beijing and Britain, uh, you know, despite those vestiges of royal links that we do see here everywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those are striking uh, words indeed. What have we heard, though, from other Commonwealth nations around uh, the Asia-Pacific region, Stephen? Well, you know, obviously, you know, Queen Elizabeth II presided over what some would say was the sunset of the the British Empire. But boy, what a view she had uh, of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. She met with Emperor Hirohito, Indonesia's Suharto, King Bumibon of Thailand, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. Uh, Singapore, of course, was a former British colony until self-governance was gained in 1959 as it was part of Malaysia uh, and then got its independence from Malaysia. Asia in 1965. Lee Kuan Yew, or excuse me, Lee Hsien Long, the Prime Minister of, of Singapore, said uh, Singapore is deeply saddened. Uh, Her Majesty left a significant mark on Singapore's history, uh, on our on our longstanding close relations with, with the United Kingdom. Also, Anthony Albanese, the uh, Australian Prime Minister, says the Queen embodied and exhibited a timeless decency. He will be traveling to London to, to attend the funeral, uh, believed to be in 10 days or so. Uh, Parliament in Australia will be suspended for 15 days. They'll have a national day of mourning in Australia. And keep in mind, of course, the Queen still is, or now Charles III, is, uh, you know, the head of state, as is he is in New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands. That's Bloomberg's chief North Asia TV correspondent, Stephen Engel, speaking to us from Hong Kong. Well, of course, the Queen's first official overseas visit happened in 1947 before she became monarch. uh, And it was to South Africa. It was there that she pledged in a radio broadcast to devote her life to the service of her people. Quote, whether it be long or short. She celebrated her 21st birthday in South Africa, a country that has changed profoundly during her reign. Amokhalang Mbata is our South Africa bureau chief. I think we all know that um, Queen Elizabeth uh, was very fond of South Africa itself. But, of course, we've had some mixed reactions to her passing. All of this, of course, because we know that there is quite a deep history of, you know, colonialism. And that in itself, you know, does present some sort of, um, you know, tension in terms of how people feel around her passing. But overall and in general, there is a sense of empathy uh, with um, the British nation and, and, and empathy in the sense of reminding us of the loss of an icon because indeed she was an icon. And I think it reminds South Africans of a time of mourning when they felt deep sadness when former President Nelson Mandela also passed away in 2017. So in that sense, there is a deep sense of empathy, particularly, of course, because she also was very fond, the Queen, that is, of former President Nelson Mandela, and they enjoyed a really great friendship. Um, We've also had some um, heads of state in the region, including outgoing Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, expressing his condolences, describing uh, Queen Elizabeth II as the towering global icon of selfless service to humanity. And of course, he, he also recalled close ties with the East African nation. She was on safari in Kenya in 1952 when her father, King George VI, died and she learned of her ascension to the throne. Of course, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has also extended the nation's condolences. Yes, Amo. Um, so where then, I mean, the, the moment of perhaps reflection uh, around um, 
Britain's past um, colonial ties, I think, perhaps may come at a later point. But this is really clearly a very significant moment for the nation and also for the Commonwealth, because that is effectively where the roots of the Commonwealth Alliance, of which the Queen was head, you know, um, were formed. It became the group of 56 Commonwealth nations um, and, and the Queen led that for so many years um, in a way to to try to bring about positive change in uh, many spheres of life in Commonwealth countries. What What is the passing of the Queen going to mean to the Commonwealth, which now, of course, King Charles III will be head of? Rightly so. I think that is what uh, Commonwealth nations and perhaps the, the region of sub-Saharan Africa is really eager to see exactly, um, you know, how... Uh, King Charles III will prioritize his support to the Commonwealth as well as um, other economies in sub-Saharan Africa. We know that the United Kingdom is in many ways a key trading partner for a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, including South Africa. I think what we need to emphasize, though, is that in general, this is the loss of a global icon. And there is a sense of sadness, there is a sense of empathy for the loss that Britain has suffered. And I think for many people, there will be an outpouring of condolences, but also um, a renewed hope to see exactly how uh, ties can be renewed and positive relationships can be fostered, particularly as uh, King Charles III um, comes into um, the throne. And that was Amakhalang Mbata, Bloomberg, South Africa Bureau Chief, speaking to us earlier on Bloomberg Radio. Now, many of the Queen's overseas visits had political significance, perhaps none more so than the state visit to Ireland in 2011, the first by a British monarch since the country's independence. Bloomberg's Dara Doyle in Dublin covered that visit, and he's been reflecting on the effect that it had on the often complicated relationship between Ireland and Britain. Ireland's got a sort of double-edged um, relationship with the monarchy, I would say. You know, on one hand, you know, most of us uh, in the South would be uh, sort of Republicans in the, in the true sense of the word, in that we probably don't sort of believe or agree in the monarchy. Um, on the other hand, like most people around the world, we've been kind of fascinated by the soap opera, you know, that is the royal family over the last 20 years. And I think, you know, we saw that in, particularly in 2011 when the Queen made the first visit by a, a monarch in uh, nearly 100 years to Ireland, um, where crowds, huge crowds turned out to sort of greet the Queen. Um, and of course, that, that trip was hugely symbolic, being the first visit by a monarch in 100 years. Um, she... Uh, as you know, she went to uh, to pay trip to commemorate or to the to the place in Dublin where we remember the Irish rebels who fought for independence. She spoke very kindly at a state dinner. She used some Irish words uh, at the state dinner, and I think a lot of people were taken by that. I think you know, in a way, it sort of symbolised what the transformation of the monarchy, the view of the monarchy in Ireland. You know, thirty, forty years ago, when I was kind of growing up, Ireland, the Queen, the monarch would have been seen as very cold, remote, so symbol of the British state. And I think by two thousand eleven. And she'd become like, you know, sort of warmly regarded as a symbol of maybe a reconciliation between the two islands um, to a large extent. Now, I will say, I think there's been a change again since 2011 in, in the RSU of the UK, particularly around Brexit. So I'm not sure uh, exactly if, if that legacy is, 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 is going to endure forever, but certainly she contributed to a change in the relationship between the two islands. 
Yeah, the former president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, who was the one who was in office when that state visit happened, pointed out that the Queen broke from protocol when she laid that wreath in the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin by bowing her head after doing so. Mm-hmm. Seen as this really critical moment and something that was highlighted in the statement from the Taoiseach, uh, the Prime Minister Micheál Martin, uh, in his tribute to the Queen, will, will Charles be held in the same esteem in Ireland? Well, look, I think the context is very different. The point I was trying to make a, little, a moment ago... Um, I think Brexit has changed a lot in the relationship between the two islands and the vote in 2016. Um, Prior to that, I think there was a sense that the the UK establishment was was becoming sort of neutral, if you like, in the sort of in in, in the long enduring squabble between unionists and Catholic uh, unionists and nationalists in the north, rather than leaning to one side. Um, But there's a sense, I think, since 2016 that the British state has, you know. um, not necessarily when I share it, but I think there's a more widely held view that the British state disregarded uh, the interests of Ireland by voting for Brexit and the subsequent negotiations. E- to the point where, um, you know, uh, Leo Radcliffe, then Prime Minister, described, you know, uh, last year, I think it was, that the relations between the, the, between the two islands were now at an like, all-time low, which is some, saying something. So I think the legacy is very different, or the context is very different, so I think Charles will be an important part of trying to rebuild those links between Sorry. the two islands. That was Bloomberg's Dara Doyle in Dublin speaking to us a little earlier. Really fascinating to get those global perspectives on the legacy of the Queen, the respect that she commanded in so many different parts of the world, but also the complex relationships uh, with Britain and the worlds that Charles will now have to steer in his role as king. Absolutely. How will King Charles III take the monarchy in Britain forwards? He meets the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, this afternoon as members of Parliament will be paying their respects and uh, giving tributes throughout the day today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.